The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. that time back with the sour hour on the brewing network your host jay goodwin here with scott how's it going scott it's going well we're just here i know can we just do this every let's just do a nightly show oh so tired i've been doing so many uh like nighttime events either related to the rare barrel or we, we have some like fun company outings and stuff so last night we went to an a's game with uh, a lot of the employees uh so it's all fun stuff but after getting back from traveling, you know, it's that classic, you know, I got back from vacation, now I need a vacation. Yeah. And, uh... What did I tell you I do for every trip that I take? Take an extra day. Always. Get got, back Sunday night. I ain't working Monday. I gotta do I'll that. I'll be back Tuesday morning. So I'm taking a trip upcoming where I'm getting back, then I've got a day off, and then after that is the Hop Grenade anniversary. So that'll be perfect. So I'll have a little little bit of buffer in there, but, uh, yeah, it's good to be back just, uh, after a week. Uh, we did a, an episode last week, which is episode 16, or no, sorry, 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. And now today we're going to do episode 16 and 17. We're going through a little bit of a, an attempted reformatting process, um, just trying something new because our show's been running so long that we're just way over an hour. We're closer to two hours than one hour, so... Sort of makes sense to try and just get to two hours and then maybe split them into two episodes. But, you know, is that is that kind of the idea, Scott? Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, this is the only um, once-monthly show. All the other ones, Dr. Homebrew and Brewing the Style and Brew Strong, those are all uh, twice a month. And we record them in the same night. We'll You're do saying I'm lazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm lucky I even got you once a month. All that partying and you just uh, you can't do anything else. You know, it's funny, before I continue on the format thing, yeah. we have a couple of uh, listeners from Australia that are in, and uh, they were saying uh, that they keep the Hop Grenades uh, tap list page mm-hmm. bookmarked on their computers down under, just so they can log in every morning when they get to work and be wildly jealous that they can't have your life where they party all the time. They, they just <laughs> look and be like, oh, I wonder what it would be like. Well, there's your answer, guys. It's it's just as tiring, apparently. Yeah. I don't know. There's probably a lot of great things about Australia. I haven't been down there before, so... Maybe I'll, uh, I'll go visit them. We can have some beers together. Yeah. You got to get your beer to Australia once you're, you know, they're actually the... uh, in our studio audience. Yes, they are here. I know. Awesome. I'm talking about them like they're not here. They're, oh. they're watching us. That's not rude. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so we, uh, we do record two shows uh, a month for all the other ones, mm-hmm. uh, and this was the only just because we were testing it out, you know. Right. But it's been a, a year, and people like the show, so we're gonna do two episodes instead of one, and uh, we'll we'll record them back to back when we're in here, and uh, we'll give you guys a, an episode every other week instead of once a month. I kind of just don't want to leave behind this idea though that we're like way over delivering on the hour promise. So now it's like we're splitting it into two. And, you know, it's a lot harder to go way over two hours than way over one hour. So I'm a really big fan of the under-promise, over-deliver, for sure. Yes. Ask ask my girlfriend about that. Right. She'll agree full. No, yeah. No, this is why I basically got C's in, like, my freshman year of high school. Mm Because then when I was getting C-pluses and B-minuses in my sophomore year, everyone was thrilled. 
Yeah, they set the bar low enough, exactly. and then it's just all good after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to let you guys know a little, just a little behind the curtain, know about uh, what's going on with all that stuff. Let us know what you think. Um, shoot us an email. Shoot it to Scott specifically, Scott at thebrewingnetwork.com. Do I have a Brewing Network email? We can make you one. I thought I thought I was going to have one, but then you know nothing happened, which I was surprised because usually you know Brewing Network on top like, of things we we say something and then we do it. I know right? it's weird. I don't know what happened with it. I guess we must have dropped the ball this one time. Yeah. Yeah. Forgive then, us. Then people can just email me direct on that and get into some questions. And you won't have to do as many uh, email forwardings as, right. as you currently do. As I do. Well, you know, uh, I would say we'll get right on that. But, of course, Justin is on vacation <laughs> to, for yeah. another week, for a week. So you may not have one for, uh, um, you know, a few more days. But we'll, we'll, well, we'll get right I mean, on that. I mean, we've only been at it for a year or so. I'm, I'm just saying, like, by August 2016, maybe that's something we can yeah. set up. Yeah, yeah. Well, but yeah, and, the right second, and then if we get it to you by June of 2016, we've over-delivered. Exactly. Yes. Under-promise, over-deliver. So it's it's actually Justin that is uh, a fan of the—well, he's representing theoretically the audience. Like, well, if you keep it to one hour, it's it's, it's good for listenership. And with the exception sure. of the session, people like it a little a little higher and tighter, um, which I don't know if that's true. I, he's probably right, but, you know, let us know what you think. Yeah, send us an email. Let us know. You know, do you like the the two tight shows or you know one show that's a little bit over? Uh, you know, we're, we're in the process of retooling this, so uh, you know we're definitely open to feedback. Speaking of feedback, you can join in on this show because it's going to be a question and answer show. Uh, we we want you guys to join in, and I, I realize I really like when people call in because that that interactive process. I can ask questions back if you guys are asking questions of me, and it's just so much easier to get to the bottom of things. So definitely give us a call. 888-401-BEER. Um, joining us in the chat is, you know, that's almost just as good. We can have questions and answers back and forth. And then, you know, join in by uh, watching us live, thebrewingnetwork.com slash TV or the BN mobile app. Um, but if you're, you know, stubborn and you refuse to listen live because you have a job or whatever. Right. A uh, family. Yeah. Yeah. S- something more important to do. Uh, go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave feedback for us. We definitely uh, read that stuff and take take the feedback seriously on uh, how to improve the show. I realized I went through that whole thing, and usually I like to say hi to Bevo, too. So right. I'll just stop here to say hello. Hey, Bevo. How's it going? <laughs> this is so weird because she wasn't ready for that. Can you believe it? <laughs> Wait, she's, she's saying, hold on one second to whoever she's on the phone with. This one's actually a work-related call. No, it is not. <laughs> no, it really, it really is. Yeah. Okay. She had her she had her cell phone pressed okay, up against yeah. her ear. Did you just hang up on the person? That's all. <laughs> then she mashed her phone down and threw her headset. All right. Yeah. That that was nice. great. I, I might start doing that a little bit more, like skip the early intro to Bevo. Yeah, because so, she might start to learn. Yeah, keep her on her toes. So we just, you know, come in at a random time. She won't be ready. Because that's one of my favorite. When I, I, you know, I listen back to all the shows because... Sometimes when, you know, we're hosting or we're trying to get to all these topics, a lot of the great information that the guest says, you know, that goes, you know, I, I can't pay full attention. So I'll listen back. And one of my favorite parts is always, yes, the, the awkward saying hello to Devo at the top. So. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Like, th- that is sort of counterintuitive. I think most people that haven't done this before think that if you're sitting here with the headset and you're interacting in real time with your jester kings, mm-hmm. then you're m- as engaged as you can possibly be. And you're like a sponge soaking up every detail, which I wish that were true. <laughs> but there really is a much it's much easier to when you're. Uh, listening passively, and you know you don't have to be ready to jump in. Right. 
that you really do absorb information much better. You guys that are mowing your lawn with your earbuds in are are absorbing more than we are. Yeah, and it's like now I really appreciate, you know, what you do, what Justin does, where it's like before, you know, it, it's it's hard to fully appreciate kind of the skill of hosting and kind of making the show go along. I, not not to make it seem like it's, you know, rocket science, you know, but, it, it you know, it's hard for me to pick up and I've been doing it for a year and it's still difficult where I, you know, can't always listen to every single answer, but it's great to listen back to. Um, is rocket science even that hard? The thing is fire and it goes fast. That's, yeah. wow, it's real complicated. What's the hardest hard job, rocket science or brain surgery? Go. <laughs> well, I like the way Mike Myers put it in uh, Mystery Alaska when he said, uh, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird deep pull there. Awesome. You ever see that movie? Uh, no. Okay. It's got an ice hockey movie about uh, like a team up in Alaska that plays the New York Rangers in like an exhibition game. What's the it's name really of the great. movie again? Mystery it was, it was hard Alaska. To listen. I was hosting the show. Huh? Uh, <laughs> m- uh, Mystery Alaska. The mystery mystery Alaska. is the name of this of the town. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good stuff. I'll and Mike that. Myers is one of the is like the color commentary guy. And at one point he said something along those lines, like it's not rocket surgery. It's just the right wing and left wing in the center or awesome. something. Yeah, good stuff. That's a good expression. Um, a few other things I want to hit at the top, Firestone Walker, their, uh, brewers from Bail- barrel, works are going to come to the rare barrel, uh, tomorrow night. We're having an event, which, uh, is, uh, kind of like an explanation of different acids. So you've heard of like lactic acidity, acetic acid, and then how they measure acid in their beers, which is total acidity. It's kind of going to be an, a fun educational event. That event, unfortunately is already sold out, but right after that, uh, Weren't, the Rare Barrel isn't open on Thursday nights for uh, public tasting, but this night we are going to be, because uh, we're going to have the guys uh, in town with some of their beers. We're going to put some of our beers on tap, so it should be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. They don't, so they don't, uh, they only measure the total amount of acid. They don't differentiate between the different types. So now you're at, so, okay, this is not something that I know a lot about. And I'm, so it's funny because uh, Jim Crooks, who we had on, uh, you know, this show just a little while ago. Yeah, don't uh, tell me he went into great detail about that. He went he into on the great detail. No, we, we touched <laughs> uh-huh. on it. I had a lot more questions to get into it on the show. And to be honest, I think I'm I'm supposed to be speaking as a part of this event. I'm just going to be listening to Jim, to be honest, because I really don't know that much about it because there's, diff- there's different ways uh, total acidity is, like, reported. So it'll be, hey, this is 14 grams per liter lactic. And so, you know, I have, I have questions about that. Does that mean... It doesn't include acetic, and anyway, I could go into my 20 questions, but I'd rather just report back on them after I <laughs> yeah. after I ask the people who are smarter than me at uh, Firestone Walker Barrel Works. Best um, to ask questions when you have someone here, you can answer them. It's, yeah. It's not as satisfying when you just ask one question and then follow it up with another question. Yep. Great day to do a Q&A show after I just say, <laughs> right. you know, don't ask about total acidity, don't ask about hops. Um, last thing I want to pl- plug, and you know, this might be a little bit of a sensitive uh, topic, Scott, because I don't know if you know about this, but I, I committed podcast adultery on you. I what? went on the Fermentation Nation podcast and did an interview on that. So I feel betrayed. Yeah. It was right after we had the Gesture King show, too. So, oh, yeah. Let me just pull the, the knife out of my back here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to be, you know, upfront about that. But uh, yeah, go give that a listen. Uh, those guys do a great job, and it was a great time being on their show. So, uh, Fermentation Nation, just uh, search it, up, search for it on uh, iTunes or fermentationnation.net. I'll just cut all that out and post. Yeah, no problem. But you live listeners, you can go check it out. <laughs> cool. So brief mention of uh, 
last show, uh, we had Jester King on, which was a big get. Those guys are doing incredible things with their beers. Still kind of freaks me out how, like, so Garrett and Adrian, they're they're really young. And also the brewery is very young. And the amount of beer they make is very small. But the impact of Jester King is so large. And people just, like, are going crazy for their beer. haven't really seen any, like, anything quite like that. I mean, there's some breweries that get hot, but they're, they are, like, on top of the world right now. So it's really cool to be able to talk to them about their beers. Yeah, it's always amazing when people are able to sort of reinvent the wheel on something that's so ancient, like beer making. Like, how is it? How has everything not been done or figured out? Or not everyone's doing it, but at least people kind of knew how to... But that isn't true. Like, there does seem to be a Jester King that comes along with more and more frequency these days, or a rare barrel for that matter, and really just figures out how to do it more consistently and better. But it's such an ancient art brewing. Yeah, they're making they're they're doing unique things, which right. is it's hard to do when there's three thousand breweries that you know none of them make flagships anymore. They're all specialty beers. Right. We're all getting you know ingredients from the same places. I think one of the big cool differentiators is people who look for alternative fermentations, so native yeast or different ways of using yeast and bacteria, and that's definitely something that Jester King does. And there's a lot of breweries doing that, but they they do it really well and so if you're interested in kind of how they do things definitely go back and uh listen to that show which again that's split up into two show 14 and 15 but a lot of information from them um and then just quick uh preview of next month's show uh, i think we're gonna have lauren salazar in, in the studio the, yes in the studio she's gonna be in town and it'd be great to kind of have her back in because i think she was the second guest on the Sour Hour, and that show was September of last year, I think, also. Yes. So maybe we'll just uh, book her on, like, a yearly yearly contract to be able to get her on the show. That would be awesome. Just yearly? Yeah. Uh, how about quarterly? Well, you're trying to make me to do, do more shows now, so I might need her to come in a sure. little more often. To well, actually, why, how about just a new co-host? We could, we could use a female. That would be right? great. Yeah. That would take a lot of pressure You don't count, Bebo. Don't I scowl at me. I am a female. No, no. Yeah, but we need, like, a female brain, not just a female face. That was so rude. <laughs> you know, it's true. Just someone who's listening, you know, that's all. That's more accurate. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Actually, we were just uh, in, this, in San Francisco yesterday and uh, went to a pie bar on Valencia. And there's that mm. place is old school. And you could tell they've been like, you know, grandfathered in on the Russian River account for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, they were pouring like three different beers on tap and they had Pliny in the fridge. Um, and uh, there was a... a, a peach sour beer from the lips of faith series from uh, new belgium which i hadn't had nice. before i don't even think i've had anything that wasn't um dark from from their lips of or from the from the sours at least hmm. did have you, you did you have Le terroir the dry hop sour yeah but i i recall that being uh dark in color no that's a golden, no that's a golden sour. okay well then maybe i haven't had it or or i don't recall and then their big new rollout is snapshot which is the it's like Lightly tart with lactobacillus, um, and that's in, like, grocery stores. That I've seen, yeah, that's, like, the wheat, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. like, the but, Instagram camera on the front. Yeah, totally. So that I've had, but that's that's a quick turnaround time beer, isn't it? That's not an oak-age beer, is it? No, I don't think it's oak-age, and it's also, it's a, it's lighter on acidity than a lot of the beers we talk about on this show. Right. But. This was, this was pretty, uh, this was acidic. I think this was a barrel-age beer. Anyway, I really liked it. It was nice. awesome. Um, I hope she brings some with her. Uh, I think that's a, that's a guarantee. Um... So I think how the uh, these two Q&A shows that we're about to do are going to work are uh, got a couple of guests. 
uh, that are going to be one on each show. Um, got James Shamas, who did a uh, presentation um, with, about small barrels for homebrewers, um, homebrew use. So we'll be talking to him in this kind of first part of the, the split show. And then we're going to have our old friend, uh, Matt Miller, Dr. Lambic, on the second part of the show. And uh, both those guys uh, sent us beers. So we'll be able to talk about kind of their unique perspectives on uh, making sour beer. And then it's kind of awesome when you get to also kind of translate their theories into flavors when we're doing the tastings as well. But that's a lot of me yapping. Should we get to a question or two before maybe taking a break? Yeah, let's do it. And by the way, when we do uh, speak with James, we do have uh, some of his beer that he sent in. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, ask me how many of his beers I drank before uh, bringing them in here. How many did you drink? You're making a circular shape with uh, your your hand, in, now I'm, indicating yeah. like zero. I really fucked you. But uh, that, that can't be true. No, I didn't drink any of them. They're wow. all here. Yep. Well, that would be great. Then we'll actually, you know, be able to... <laughs> sync up with our guests who are usually like oh did you guys yeah. get the what i really can't wait for you to open shower? is no. yeah the peach chardonnay uh oh uh oh, that one bro <laughs> yeah All right. uh, scott's got some like jagged edge mailbox where like you know any package dropped in there you know it's just yeah. all the beer's gone well I'm a, I'm a huge sharks fan and so my mailbox is like that open mouth of the shark and the teeth and they just yeah the bottles break what do you want from me yeah yeah oh, all right here's a question from uh david yahoo he's sending this in from uh spongebob's shell phone please excuse any typos he said uh, my first sour speaking of golden sours it's a golden ale completing a uh, sack primary fermentation. Then it'll be transferred to a, to a uh, carboy for a secondary with Brett, Lacto, and some bottle dregs locked away in a closet for about a year. I'd like to add fruit before bottling. Um, how should I decide which fruit uh, to add and when I would add it? Uh, I'll tackle the second part of that. So when to add the fruit. Um, we like to add fruit at the rare barrel while there's still a little activity in uh, the fermentation. So anywhere from... Three months into about six months, maybe maybe even as late as nine months if the fermentation is a little sluggish. Um, and then we'll let that re-ferment. You know, I, I've seen fruit ferment out in four weeks, and then I've seen fruit take four months to ferment out. So it's really a, a wide range and tasting. And I understand for homebrewers taking, gr- like, so many gravity readings is not really realistic. So I, I'd kind of just let it age on the longer side and try and use your, your palate and your... Uh, kind of just visually looking at it, seeing if there's, you know, you take a sample off, you uh, swish it around your glass, you see if there's bubbles coming up. That's, you know, that's an obvious uh, visual cue for continued fermentation. Um, the first part of it, you know, what fruit to add, I feel like that's a total personal decision. And it's like, that's one of the coolest things you get to do as a home brewer. So, um, not strawberries. Well, yeah. That's my advice. People struggle with uh, strawberries, and there's, there just seems to be some off flavors associated with uh, that fruit addition. But, you know, honestly, apricot and raspberry yeah, are exactly. you know, just like, if you don't really want to reinvent the wheel, to use that phrase again, it's just, those beers are going to be good. Yep. So if you want your beer to be good, just put those in there. That's it. But, you know, it's it's a personal decision. So if you got, you know, a boysenberry bush in your backyard, it's like, okay, cool. Or if there's... Wherever you live, if there's something cool that's, you know, like uh, I was in Michigan a, a few weeks ago and there's a lot of rhubarb in Michigan. So like for a little part of the year, everything has rhubarb in it. And it's like if that's, you know, if you have a local agriculture that you might be able to integrate, then, you know, try that out or split the batch in two and do half raspberry and half rhubarb and go from there. 
Here's one from uh, Nick Daniels. Uh, he said, hey, guys, insert verbal handy here. And he spelled hey, H-A-Y. So, hey, guys. Okay. okay. I, I, I see his tone. Uh, I have an apricot sour that was fermented with Jolly Pumpkin and Crooked Stave yeast and bugs uh, that I grew to a full pitch. It's been on fruit for three months. I love it, uh, but uh, others feel that it is too sour. Uh, it's a small bit more like uh, it's a small bit more sour than Cantillon Rosé. It's a very clean lactic sour, no off flavors like vinegar. I want to brew a pale lager and blend the sour with it to lower the sourness level. What is the best way to calculate the carbonation and sugar needed if the lager's final gravity it was uh, 1008. Um, both are five-gallon batches. With the fruit, there may be uh, less than five for the sour. Uh, first suggestion, don't brew the pale lager and just get better friends. I mean, right, I know. You love too this sour. beer. That's, and... That was my first thought, too. Like, maybe your friends are just, they're not sour beer drinkers. And Yeah, you love this beer. Um, you know, sour beer stays tasting good for a long time. So even if you're not going to consume, like, a full five gallons right away, you know, bottle some up and... Uh, Keep them, you know, exactly the way you want. Now, to answer the question that you actually asked, um, yeah, I, I'd say if there's some residual sugar in a lager, that would worry me a little bit. Something we touched on on the last show, where if you want to blend two beers together that have drastically different fermentations and also different uh, sugar contents, you're really going to want to do a pre-blend for stability purposes and let that age out um, a little bit further. So... Not to harp back on this, but that's another reason not to do this because you already have a beer that you really like. Maybe you can, you know, bottle half of that, half of that beer, and then blend the rest into uh, the pale lager and let it age out a little bit more. But unfortunately, I think that's what you're going to have to do. And on the homebrew scale, it's a little hard to know when that's going to be done. But I'd give it, I don't know, maybe at least two to three months. So, I mean, again, you've got a great beer that you love now, but you can let your friends run your life. <laughs> Or you can just man up and drink that really sour beer that sure. you love. Or you can send it into uh, the Hop Grenade, and we will tell you if it's too sour. It sounds great. I mean, you got apricots, you got the dregs in there. That's like a home run sour beer. Definitely. So if if everyone would just start making uh, home brew beer with that technique, I think everyone's beer would be a lot better. So good job. Let me ask you this: What if he, uh, when serving these pussy friends of his, just cut it with water a little bit? There you go. Car- Literally, carbonated right? water? Yeah. yeah. Or or just, you know, you have a pale lager, just carve up your pale, like, let's let's say you have a kegerator. You carve up your pale lager, you carve up your sour beer, they're on tap side by side, just have your friends blend them yeah. to their taste. Yeah. And then and you can still have your kick-ass beer. Totally. And just so you know, um, that's not an outrageous suggestion. Jamil Zaynashev, um loves to water down his very own uh, shallow grave. He mm-hmm. uh, calls it a watery grave. Uh, Bevo, you're a fan <laughs> too, aren't you? I'm a big fan of yeah. that, actually. It, it is really, really good. Really, really good. And yeah. it lowers the alcohol. Oh, yeah. It's great. Yep. There's a lot of, you know, that that beer is drinkable for a robust porter. But, I mean, they, there's definitely enough depth of flavor in that beer to add water to and have it still be awesome. So, yeah, that you know, maybe that wasn't the best answer. But it's going to be a lot of work to kind of cater to your friends. So sure, just forget about Screw it. Screw them. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got a lot more questions to get to. We got James who's waiting on us uh, to talk about small barrels from homebrewers. So let's take a quick beer break and we'll be right back on the Sour Hour. 
three-time Ninkasi Award winner and Grandmaster Judge Gordon Strong invites you on a guided journey of what's new in the world of homebrewing. Modern homebrew recipes, exploring styles, and contemporary techniques available now from Brewers Publications. Gordon brings you specific advice and sensory profiles for as-brewed, award-winning beers with delicious variations to get your creative juices flowing. This is more than just a book of recipes. It sets brewers on the path to discovering what's new in the world of homebrewing. AHA director Gary Glass says, if you want to enter competitions or just learn more about styles that you might not have experience with, this book is going to help you tremendously. By emulating what Gordon does, you're going to make better beer. Modern homebrew recipes, exploring styles and contemporary techniques by Gordon Strong. Available right now from BrewersPublications.com and find brewing retailers near you. Are you a member of the American Homebrewers Association? Well, you should be. Members of the AHA can focus on brewing beer, and the AHA takes care of the rest. The American Homebrewers Association advocates on behalf of homebrewers like you to legalize the hobby in all 50 states and make sure that beer laws make sense. Plus, there are many great benefits that come with your AHA membership, like AHA member deals that give you awesome deals at bars, restaurants, breweries, and more. Zymergy Magazine and e Zymergy for tons of articles, how-tos, easy-to-follow recipes, and news about the hobby you love, and access to the members-only content on homebrewersassociation.org. But the AHA can't do it without your support. Join today so the American Homebrewers Association can keep fighting for your homebrewing rights. Visit homebrewersassociation.org or join now from the homepage of the Brewing Network website. Relax. Don't worry. It's the American Homebrewers Association. Back on the Sour Hour Q and A show, got to a couple of good questions uh, in that first segment. Just a reminder: all the all the questions on tonight's show, all the questions all the time, brought to you by sourbeerblog.com. And it's it's great to mention this because we're having uh, Matt on the next show in a little bit, talking about his beer and uh, his new blog post. So I won't I won't spoil the surprise. But if you're not following Sour Beer Blog, you should be Facebook sourbeerblog.com. All that good stuff. Should we get into this beer that we have in front of us and uh, bring James in? Yeah. Hey, James, you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. So we've got uh, your Oud Bruin Creek in front of us. Is that right? That's right. And Scott, nice job not drinking these. I sent these to you a while ago, <laughs> and I thought for sure I was going to have to send another batch. See, so, that's the uh, thing. Yeah, people, people think that I, I'm, I have like a no decorum, and I'll just like drink anything at any time. But if we have a purpose for the beer, like if you, I mean, you've listened to other BN shows, right? Have you ever sure. heard us like, uh, oh, uh, here's a left hand brewing from Colorado, they're on, but uh, oh boy, it looks like they sent us milk stout, but we don't have it for the show because Scott drank it. Has that ever happened? I'm, yeah, I think it has. No, it has. I'm hearing Please. a lot of excuses right Please. now dare and you you also say you know you don't drink beer that's for a purpose but sometimes the purpose is for me to drink the beer <laughs> so you know I, I like that, you, that it doesn't that doesn't rise to the level of importance but no well you got to come over more often and we can you know because uh, they get drink at my house two, two, two everyone's ta- welcome to two come times to my house in two weeks what's that four shows in two weeks that's often it is <laughs> hey uh, james this beer tastes great great to hear that yeah it's a uh, really good nice uh cherry character great 
great malt flavor to it. You know, it's it's nice to have dryness is such a big thing in sour beer, but sometimes you want a little bit of malt uh, in the mix too. And this is really well balanced where it's not too sweet and uh, balances with the acidity really well. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about how you made this beer? And then we'll uh, we'll jump into your whole uh, your whole uh, presentation on uh, small barrels. Sure. So um, the, the grist for this is 60% Pils malt, 13% Munich, 13% Crystal, which is a mix between 120 and 60, 7% wheat, 7% aromatic, um, 10 IBUs uh, in the boil. And I primaried it with a Rose Lair blend from Y Yeast. Um, I actually left it for a long time before I moved it into the barrel. And this beer was the first beer in that barrel. It's a five-gallon, I think it's pronounced Balcones barrel from Texas. Um, And it's a pretty dark char. And so I was somewhat worried about, you know, um, just getting too much kind of whiskey flavor out of it. So I went with, you know, this beer is like 1065 starting gravity. Um, And I did blend a little bit of clean beer into it when I took it out of the barrel. And when I took it out of the barrel, I put it in a carboy with um, – what this is is tart cherry concentrate. So one 32-ounce bottle of tart cherry concentrate for five gallons of beer. And the cherry is pretty – I think it's pretty explosive in the beer. So um, that stuff is certainly potent. It's really thick. You know, I think if you were to do it in, with a light-colored beer, you may even want to water it down a little bit. That's interesting that you you, you definitely – had all your parameters set where, you know, you knew that you, the, the quality of the barrel you're getting in, you know, the fact that you blended a little bit of clean beer in there. I think you really balanced the flavors well, and, and you're right. The the cherry really does pop out. Big um, time. How about that tart cherry? How about a, a concentrated version? I'm speaking mm-hmm. now on the, the pro scale because the cost benefit might be big, right, to use a concentrate? you ever consider that? Sure. Um, we haven't we – haven't, we, we love our – uh, source of fruit so much that I haven't really considered it, but it's something I'll definitely try on a on a small scale. But yeah, I mean, concentrate. That's just basically removing the water. So if you're more interested in flavor and less interested in you know adding more water to your beer, then I think that's a great way to go. And on the small scale, it's a huge bang for the buck, and it really comes across in the flavor of this beer. Um, James, you know, you mentioned this is this was the first fill of this barrel. Um, what kind of got you interested in using small barrels and, you know, why, why do you, why are you passionate about talking about small barrels when it comes to home brewing? Well, you know, I really like sour beers. Um, and I, I think the best sour beers in the world all are barrel aged, but the idea of having a 60 gallon or 59 gallon barrel in my basement, um, for use, anything other than sort of a table and a conversation piece, you know, kind of was hard to justify, um, I brew five gallons on my stove. I can do 10 plus outside. Even on 10 gallons, that's still six batches that have to go into a barrel. Um, and so actually as a um, groomsman gift in a wedding, a cousin of mine got me a small barrel. And that sort of started this whole thing in terms of just barrel aging clean beers. And that, you know, that was probably eight years ago. And then once I started getting into sour beers, it was a no-brainer to convert that thing into, uh, into a bit of a horny tank. Gotcha. So it wasn't like you got this barrel and then your first beer in there was sour beer. You were, you were brewing uh, clean beers in there for a while. That got you some experience? This particular beer, I have several barrels. This particular beer you're drinking was actually the first beer in a barrel that came right from the distillery. Um, but I had brewed a few beers into 
um, clean beers into barrels, which kind of got me into how to use barrels, how to clean them, how to care for them, and so forth. Um, and it actually is something I recommend to people. Uh, most of the small barrels that homebrewers can get don't come from wineries. They come from distilleries. And so it's great to put a barley wine or an imperial stout or something like that as the first batch in, really to kind of get a lot of that real aggressive whiskey taste out. Um, because most of the sour beers that we like to make are obviously more subtle and nuanced. You don't want that whiskey punch to the face. Right. So, But then in the case of this beer that we're drinking right now, you say that it was a charred barrel and this was the first fill. So how, how did you treat it? Because I, I, for the, the listeners who aren't able to try this beer, I'd say, you know, first, I, if, if you didn't tell me it had been charred, I wouldn't have known. It's, it's like a very background note. It's very well balanced. And from my experience using charred spirit barrels, um, they can be very overpowering. So what did you do in this case to kind of balance that flavor? I, so when I got it, I, I rinsed it a lot, and I actually put water in it. I left it with the water in there for, I don't know, probably a couple of days. Not the best practice, but I, I wanted to strip some of that flavor out. And then I actually took a bottle or two of cheap red wine, and not too cheap, but, you know, stuff I would drink barely, um, and put it in there and sloshed it around for a couple weeks just to kind of strip some of that flavor out. But really, I think the biggest thing with this beer is the base beer is big enough to handle it, and the cherry works well with that char. Um, I think if you were to do sort of a clean Lambic-style beer, you would definitely taste that char in this beer. I think it just kind of works with it. The other thing is time. When I pulled that beer out of the barrel before I added the cherry and blended that little bit of clean beer in, it was really aggressively oaky. Um, And, uh, you know, time does help that. Why isn't uh, leaving water in there for just a couple of days, uh, you know, he said it's not the best practice. Why not? Well, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of our max for leaving water in there that's not treated with any chemicals. So straight water into that kind of environment, uh, you could be encouraging some mold growth. So we, when we're trying to swell barrels at the rare barrel, uh, we put water in maximum 48 hours. And uh, if the barrel's not swollen by then, we have to dump out that water and refill. And then when it does swell up, that's when we add our chemicals. So potassium made by sulfite and citric acid, which is a totally inhospitable uh, environment for anything to grow in there. Is, is that kind of what you were talking about, James? Yeah, and so I was not using any of the chemicals. Um, and in fact, I used hot water which is even more likely to cause mold growth. And, you know, two, three, four days later, I don't remember how, this was a couple of years ago, um, I, you know, so I don't remember exactly how long it was, but that's, I've done it, but I have since learned that that's probably not a great idea. So yeah. did you use the wine to mimic the potassium metabisulfite, to mimic the effects of the chemical someone like Jay uses? It was, no, not really. It was really just to kind of, I, I, you know, alcohol is obviously a bit of a solvent. Um, and so it was just to kind of help extract, you know, a little bit more out of there. Did that actually help? I, you know, I actually don't know. I didn't do a side-by-side. Um, but that's what I did with this barrel. I think the, the end results speak for themselves. And it's a, a really well-balanced beer. And, yeah, it almost is more of a, a red wine character than... Uh, any char or bourbon or any spirit. Um, now, t- just taking a quick step back, when, we, when we're talking about small barrels, what are we really talking about here when it comes to size? Like, is it, what, what size barrels can you get? You know, you mentioned you can get them easier from distilleries. What are we talking about when we talk about a small barrel? 
Yeah, the most common sizes are 5 to 15 gallons. Uh, 10 seems to be a pretty popular size these days. I have seen some 8-gallon and just random weird sizes. My brother actually, who also brews sour beers, has a 3-gallon, and it's a really nice barrel. Normally, once you get that small, the barrels are not particularly nice. But um, he has a 3-gallon rum barrel that he picked up from somewhere, and it is nice. So you're really talking about the 5 to 15-gallon range. Okay, and now so now you've mentioned a new type of barrel, which is a rum barrel. How many how many types have you encountered, and what what are the different characters you think homebrewers should be looking for in types of small barrels? It's really hard to know based on the supply chain to homebrewers because unless you have a distillery near you, most often your retailer or the place you order it online is not going to be able to tell you. What I look for is what type of spirit was in there, and then if I can get information about the char, um, those are the two most important things I find. And really, so I've seen, um, you know, American whiskey bourbon type barrels. Uh, I have a, a really nice rye barrel. The other beer I sent to you guys came out of a rye barrel. Um, I've actually seen just sort of uh, sugar whiskey from the Midwest on the market lately. So the, if you can put it in a barrel, these small distilleries, just like small breweries, they're experimenting. So I suspect that that will continue to grow and, and homebrewers will have access to this sort of thing. Gotcha. And when you say, you know, you've seen these things on the market, you know, what is, what is the market for someone who, you know, hey, they want to go out, they're listening to you, they're excited, and they want to start looking for, you know, what the supply is like. Where do you look? You know, is it, you know, there's, I'm sure there's no Amazon for this, but, you know, is it eBay? Are there certain sites that kind of specialize in this? Yeah, really, it's the homebrew shops. They tend to have the best uh, sort of channel to these small distilleries. I, I think at least the distilleries that I've gotten barrels from understand that homebrewers use them. Um, and so, but I, I would say if you have a small distillery near you, it certainly can't hurt to reach out to them and see what they do with their barrels when they're done. Um, because the prices on these things have really gone up since I've started this. So at this point, you're really talking about 150 bucks. Um, regardless of the size, you know, the smaller ones are just as expensive for a barrel, which is, you know, up, I'd say 50% since I started this. Wow. Scott, you know who's got oak barrels? Who? Wineandhopshop.com. They do have Yeah, barrels. they got barrels from a local distillery. So if you're listening to this right now, go, go on and check out their inventory. They got beer kits and wine kits and all that stuff. Um, over 100 types of malt and hops. Check it out. BN listeners get a flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 50 pounds. Just enter BN shipping in the notes field of the shopping cart, and the discount's going to be taken off after your checkout. Wineandhopshop.com. It's great. Not shop, just wine and hop. Wine and, wine, you're right. Wineandhop.com. There you go. Do, uh, the wine and hop Thanks shop. for not saying www. Do you, do you, <laughs> are, are barrels going to be under 50 pounds? No way, right? Uh, no. But they have barrels. <laughs> they do have barrels, yeah. So. You know, yes. I think I think barrels are. De- I mean, from a pro burst perspective, there's a supply limitation out there, and you know, I you want barrels fast. So if they have a good good in at a distillery, I think they're they're a great place to start. Have any uh, any questions that might be uh, barrel related? Yeah, here's a rum barrel one. Actually, he just uh, right. wrote in today. This is a uh, Nathan down at uh, Bandito Brewing in Ecuador. He said, uh, "Hey guys, I'm a brewer down here in South America. My region, there is a lot of rum production." So I'm hoping to get my hands on a few barrels. So he's kind of asking about our experience with rum barrels, if we have, you know, what are some good point, good and bad points about using them, and if they're really that different from whiskey or wine barrels. 
uh, imparted flavor. So we, we're, we're touching on it. Any finer points we could put on it? And maybe I'll just follow up on his behalf and say, is it even are, – are you kind of grasping at are – you, are you seeking different instead of excellent? Like, well, everybody uses whiskey and wine barrels, so I'm going to use rum. And even though it's, like, harder to make a good beer with that, you're just doing it to say rum barrel because no one else says that. And I'm, I'm always a fan of pursuing excellence over newness. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I'm wrong, and maybe you can make just as good of a beer with it. Yeah, what do you think, James? So my brother has a rum barrel. I think I may have mentioned that. And it produces excellent uh, barrel-aged sort of tart sour saisons. Um, I, you know, I think it would probably good, be good with any blonde type of sour beer. It's just that sort of bright tropical taste that comes from the rum. It just seems to work so well with saisons. I mean... Um, I, I obviously brew a lot of beer, and I have a stash of my brother's barrel-aged saisons in my basement because they are just outstanding. So that's what I would recommend. Start there. Once you start using barrels, so as a home brewer, one of the things I do is I like to think about each barrel as a program. So start with a saison, see what the barrel's giving you, and then from that point forward, you can understand how to best use that barrel based on the taste. Nice. And you know, when it comes to your brother's rum barrel, is he trying to keep that rum character going or is it becoming a neutral barrel are you kind of re not not inoculate inoculated but redosing with rum each time you want to get that character not really i think kind of um I, I can speak for myself with each barrel i am trying to reduce the barrel character with each successive batch Knowing that when I buy new barrels, I'm going to have that sort of very aggressive barrel or whiskey or rum character. So what I'm looking for is a sort of inventory where I have new ones that I can use for beers that I want an aggressive character and old ones where I want a neutral barrel character. Awesome. That kind of hits on, you know, one of the main challenges of having a a small barrel program, which is how to deal with that big flavor impact. You've touched on it a little bit, but... Let's take the most typical situation. So you're recommending, you know, a, a distillery sourced barrel that's probably going to be whiskey. What would you recommend for, you know, a first batch? Would you be able to do a sour batch right after that? Or, you know, how many batches do you think it would take? Yeah. So I would say do a, it, your best bet is to do a non-sour batch first. First of all, if you haven't made a barrel-aged imperial stout or, bar, or barley wine before, uh, they come out great, even with these small barrels. So, you know, brew a huge beer and stick it in there for three or six months or so, um, and that will really help. The other thing you can do, and actually I've done this, is if you know any winemakers, you can give them the barrel, have them do a batch of wine, um, and say, you know, when you're done with this, I'll take it back. So I have a couple of Italian cousins that make wine, and that's another good way to sort of strip that really aggressive character. So, you know, that's what I would really recommend. And then after that, it's, you know, again, if we're talking about a highly charred whiskey barrel, um, it's go for a a big gravity, uh, somewhat aggressive sour beer. I do think that fruit helps cut that oak flavor. Um, I think the acidity in the sour beer is actually important for counteracting that aggressive flavor. So one of the things I've tried to do is I have a sour beer, it's in a barrel, and I'm trying to blend it with non-sour, non-barrel-aged beer. And while the acidity goes down and presumably the absolute 
oak character goes down. The, the perceptive oak character goes up. So I think there's something about the sourness that actually helps counteract that. So if you are going to blend, and I am a huge advocate of blending beers, whether you're a home brewer or a pro brewer, um, I think when it comes to those really young barrels, you want to make sure you keep your acidity levels where, where sort of the main beer is. Awesome. Well, I think we're coming up to a break. Can you hang on with us, uh, James, and maybe we'll get into a few more of the uh, the challenges and solutions and maybe a few more uh, listener questions? Yeah, and we got, I, this, we got this other beer from James, too. And yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. Uh, quickly, uh, before we go to break, I want to get to a question from uh, Scotty in the chat room. Um, All right. He said, what about tequila barrels? Tequila goes good with lime and, and that's sour. Yeah, I'll, I'll quickly chime in on this. We, we've gotten two batches of tequila barrels in at the Rare Barrel, and there's there's still a work in progress, I would say. The, the flavors are very different. Um, you know, I, I was comfortable going right into them with sour beer because, you know, if the flavor was, you know, too intense, then we can always blend down, uh, like James is mentioning. But, you know, we've, we've been aging them for a while, and there's still some rough edges to them. Um, so, you know, I, I can't say that we've gone from start to finish on tequila and I have, you know, the, the best advice on it at this point, but James, what do you think on the small scale? Have you dealt with tequila barrels at all? I haven't come across any tequila barrels, but you know, if you're a home brewer, why not try it? I mean, there's nothing to lose. So that's, that's my recommendation. Sure. And, and maybe, maybe it's even as simple as, you know, before you take the plunge on the $150 or realistically, if it's a tequila barrel and James hasn't seen any, might be even more 200, 250, just, uh, get some, get some, uh, oak cubes, soak them in tequila and then, uh, drop those in a beer that you think might work because that, that'll just give you, it's, it's like we talked about with, uh, with tinctures on, you know, before where, you know, it's going to give you a little sneak preview of, what you're going to be getting into before you make that full commitment to it. So that's what I would do. All right, cool. Well, let's take a brief break and then kind of keep getting into this uh, homebrew barrel-age stuff with uh, James, and we'll be right back on the Sour Hour. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerones know beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerones are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious. Cicerone are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. This is Jamel Zanisha, and I want to tell you about Heretic Evil Twin. You might be familiar with my homebrew recipe, which uses massive late hopping to create a balance between the malty sweet and the hoppy bitter, along with an outrageous malt and hop character. I wanted a beer with the same bold hop and malt character, so we played around with the homebrew recipe until we were able to make a great commercial version, too. We've created a beer rich in malt character, full of caramel, toast, biscuit, and an ever-so-subtle roast note. On top of that, we piled in an insane amount of citra and Columbus hops at the end of the boil, as well as in dry hopping. This damn-the-cost approach to hopping gives Heretic's Evil Twin a great blast of citrus and tropical fruit that can't be matched by any other hop. 
that results as a bold, malty, hoppy, but easy-drinking beer. This is our top seller, our flagship beer, and I couldn't be prouder of it. Cheers. To find Heretic Beers near you, click on Find Some at hereticbrewing.com. We're back on the Sour Hour Q&A show, part one, episode one. I don't know. It's all still <laughs> very confusing to me. But uh, we got some some good uh, some good beer that uh, James sent us in. Um, before we taste this last one, I just want to remind you guys to uh, listen to all the more popular other shows on the Brewing Network, such as The Session and Dr. Homebrew and Brew Strong. They're all smarter than me, so if you want to, you know, just not make sour beer and make great regular beer, I like, you know, that's kind of like downgrading, you know, in quotes, regular beer, mm-hmm. but, you know, it. I drink a lot of sour beer, obviously, with uh, working at the Rare Barrel, but, you know, when I go out, a lot of times what I want is, you know, a nice session IPA. I'm drinking Even Keel by Ballast Point. I love a good uh, English cast beer, so... The way you're going to learn how to do that is on all these other shows. So definitely uh, support the BN and listen to the other great shows on the Brewing Network. So let's get back to James. So, James, we have, uh, I believe, a beer in front of us that is, oh, the only thing I know about it is the name is Dragon Tears. Can you explain what the beer is? <laughs> yeah, so. B- Bebo um, just well, slid off her chair, by the way. I'll, I'll huge start turn on. I, Jay, I know you like the sort of elaborate beer name, so it might be a few words too short uh, to be a rare barrel name, but um, actually Dragon Tears are a type of pluot, and for those of the, for those of the listeners that don't know, pluot is a cross between a plum, I think, and an apricot. Um, and so what this is is essentially it's a barrel-aged Saison that was then aged on, uh, for five gallons, six and a half pounds of of these dragon tier pluots and then uh, a pound also of crab apples from the backyard that just happened to have around. So threw those in as well. Um, And this actually was, um, was the second beer that came out of a rye whiskey barrel. That was a really aggressive barrel. I put an Imperial stout through it first and then we put this, um, this fruited Saison into it. And so thus the name dragon tears. Gotcha. I definitely get a much more pronounced O character. Uh, from this beer a little like not an intense uh kind of pencil shaving character but sort of like that where you get you know you, you do feel it on your tongue a little bit more um so yeah you're definitely getting an extraction for that from that oak barrel quite a bit more um yeah it's funny you you bring up the the pluot renaming I, i've seen here in california pluots named uh flavor grenades actually so that's, a, that's a, <laughs> i don't know if that's like a different type of pluot but pluots seem to have the best names of all the fruits they're they're awesome. winning the fruit challenge i hmm. think i'll have to get uh john up here law center to send somebody a cease and desist yeah because you don't you know hop grenade flavor grenade they're confusion in the marketplace all, all grenades yeah you just you know exactly just wipe them out i think we got to sue the military get a pretty good settlement <laughs> out of that you guys were here first right before war definitely oh yeah yeah we, we predate war <laughs> Bebo, wow that Bebo was a good laugh back there that was a good one jay i think wow. yes yeah, 16 episodes in one of my she, jokes she burst out laughing that was Bebo. great <laughs> one what's that he so, got one. Oh yeah i'm one hey, for 87 one more than me <laughs> that's true so james um 
let's let's get back into uh, kind of these small barrels in general. I, you know, the the first thing that I think of when I think of people using small barrels and something I worry about is the oxygen exposure. So you're changing the dynamic of kind of the surface of the beer in contact with wood, which is porous, which is in contact with oxygen. So what what are your take takes on um, oxygen ingress and how to handle that and, you know, how the homebrewers listening can kind of make sure that that doesn't influence the flavor of their beer in a negative way. Yeah, so it is a problem. And I think with small barrels, they present a lot of the challenges of large barrels plus their own, and oxygen is definitely one of those. So some of the things I do to try to limit that exposure is, you know, I don't like to keep my beer in the barrel for years. We're really talking months. Um, This beer you're drinking now was in there for 11 months, and it's it's not necessarily showing a lot of oxygen exposure, but it's definitely showing that barrel extraction. So, you know, one to six months is kind of my rule of thumb. Um, but I always do like to have barrel uh, beer ready to go in a barrel when beer's coming out. Um, you know, a CO2 purge before you fill the barrel is always a good idea. Um, that's easy if you have beer on tap to just, you know, sort of rig up your, uh, your CO2 tank to have a little wand on it. Stick it in the barrel before you siphon in. Stick it in the barrel if you are going to take any samples or you want to look inside the barrel because you're a curious homebrewer and you can't stop playing with your barrels if you're anything like me. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk on the Sour Hour over, over your many episodes of topping off versus not topping off. It's something as a homebrewer you should certainly consider. And the other thing I like to do is I start with an airlock, but then as soon as I see that fermentation is kind of over and, and I, I have to keep the seasons in mind because my basement's not, um, you know, sort of uh, heated or cooled, is, you know, I switch to a silicone bung to try to just make sure it's nice and tight in there. Some home brewers wax their barrels, either the heads or the staves. I've not done that. I've not felt the need to do it. You know, the two beers you've had today come out of a 5 and a 15. You know, you can tell me if you think waxing would have helped them. But, you know, I don't think I've, I've had a particularly big problem with, uh, with oxygen ingress. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, one caveat to start. I, I don't get... Um some of the some of the negative flavors associated with um, too much oxygen exposure oxidation um, that's not one of my great um, I, I don't pick up that flavor very well in in even our beers at the rare barrel so I rely on the other people who work there to pick it up um, so I couldn't I, I would just be honest and say I couldn't uh, give you a comment on that but yeah the waxing is it's an interesting idea I mean you could be you know, somewhat covering up to reflect the ratio that is more typical of a of a larger oak barrel. But I think a lot of the advice you're giving is is prudent because you know you are going to get um, more impact from the oxygen on this uh, on this smaller level. But one thing I'm thinking of as I'm hearing you talk about this and your different beers and the different barrels you have, could, could you just give us like a little bit of a sense of what your cellar slash home brewery looks like with other types of equipment. You know, if, if we're if we're standing there and we see your beer, what types of equipment do you have that are kind of essential for what you're doing? You know, how many oak barrels do you have? How do you, how do you store them? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I, right now in my basement, I have three oak barrels. My brother probably off the top of my head has five. We brew separately, but we also collaborate a fair amount. Um, I would say in terms of equipment you need, uh, 
above and beyond regularly brewing equipment and, of course, duplicate equipment for sour beer making, there really isn't that much. You know, the bunghole on most of the barrels um, that we get fits a regular auto siphon. Sometimes they're a little smaller. So you can there's like a mini auto siphon that works great with a five-gallon barrel. Um, you know, in, in particular for me, I do stovetop brews that are five gallons, all grain. We do outdoor brews that are, you know, 10 plus gallons. Um, I do have a 14 gallon um, Blickman conical. So plug for John Blickman, who's a great supporter of the Brewing Network. But th- those things aren't necessarily needed to make good sour beers. One of the nice things about a five gallon barrel is you can actually lift it. So um, one challenge that all barrel make, you know, barrel um, brewers that use barrels have is how do you get the beer out? How do you get the beer in? You're dealing with pumps and so forth. You know, putting a five-gallon barrel on the floor, siphoning into it just like it's a carboy, and then sticking it into a rack—not a big deal at all. Definitely, and you, you have to you have to consider that stuff when you're thinking about you know racking off your beer, you know whatever whatever is going to be happening in your cellar, but. Um, James, we're running up against it a little bit right now. Do you get? Do you have any other kind of general advice or tips for for people who are just going to dive into this? I think blending is something that homebrewers don't think about or want to do enough of. There's this mentality with homebrewers that it's one batch, one beer, um, and it's it it can really prevent you from turning a good beer into a great beer. So don't be afraid to blend down for sourness, up for sourness. You know, down for oak, up for oak. Have a variety of beers, even in one-gallon jugs, that you can then use to sort of uh, mix into your beers. Um, and, and, you know, the point of the question earlier in the first segment about having multiple beers on tap uh, and blending at drinking time is something I love to do. I love to have a nice sour beer and then also a clean saison. And sometimes you just want a little bit of uh, tartness after you mow the lawn, and that's another great thing that homebrewers can do. So don't be afraid to blend. One batch, uh, one beer, is you throw that out the window. You can also have some before you mow the lawn, and then yard work becomes more fun. <laughs> exactly. Throw that out there. You do get yelled at if you missed a spot, though. <laughs> All right. Well, James, thanks so much for joining us. That was a lot of great info. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there who are listening to this show especially who, you know, are really interested in barrel aging and bringing that flavor into their home brewery. And I think you just gave them – a lot to think about and, you know, a pretty good roadmap to, to get there. So thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. This was a real treat for me. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Right. Thanks for sending in the beer, too, man. We appreciate it. You got it. Talk to you soon. Cool. See you, James. All right. That, those, both beers were good. Do we have another one, too? Or? Uh, uh, no, just the two. Uh, okay. the, the, uh, the, there was two bottles of the Creek. Of oh, the same then, one. Yes. Okay. Yes. No, yeah. Saved all the beer. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> BS. But. No, I swear. Really good stuff. James obviously knows what he's talking about. There's a lot of great info in there with, when it comes to small barrel aging. That my, my big concern when I think about that is the oxygen. So I think the advice he was giving, just you know, where you're really monitoring it and you're keeping blending beers around, that, that's, that's the way to go. But you know, I also agree with him when he says you, know, you can't make beers like you know, maybe your, your favorite commercial examples without this technique. You know? It's sort of like I'm not really sure if you can make beers that are like Belgian Lambic and Goose without doing a spontaneous fermentation. I, I don't know a lot of breweries where I taste their beer and that shares similar characteristics which, with Belgian breweries, and then I ask them how they make it, and they say, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, all stainless or, you know, it's a really simple fermentation. It's almost always usually uh, partly spontaneous. So I think, you know, you've, you've got to 
pick which way you're going to go when it comes to, you know, what kind of sour beer you want. One, one is not better than the other. So if you want to, you know, knock out a sour beer in a month with kettle souring and a Saccharomyces fermentation, you can do that. And we've advocated that on this show. Or if, you, you know, you're not really as interested in that style, skip that and, you know, go ahead and listen back to the uh, Russian River Allagash uh, Cantillon show where they just really dive into spontaneous. Also, Jester King dives into their program. So it's it's just what are you going for? And there's no there's no uh, right or wrong, good or bad. It's just your own personal taste. But uh, how much how much time do we have left? We can get into a few, a few more, more questions. Yeah, a couple more questions. Uh, let's go back to the chat room and go to uh, Scotty B. Just can I just say you you always pick people named Scott for, to answer their questions above you know the people with other great names. I, I there's no bias. It's Pure very, coincidence. Very discriminatory. Pure anyway, coincidence. Scott. Continue. I mean Jay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he asks, uh, does PDO always result in diacetyl? Like, is it supposed to? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think PDO is always going to produce diacetyl, but I've definitely made beers with PDO where I didn't perceive it throughout when we tasted it, basically. So, you know, a lot of the diacetyl production might be up front. Like, in, uh, if we use it kind of in a primary mixed culture fermentation, you might see it in the first, you know, 14 days or something, and then it gets cleaned up. But how much are you tasting that beer in the first 14 days? Not a lot. I mean, there's a lot of craziness going on in the beginning of a weird fermentation like that. Um, so when you're really noticing it is during the aging process in a barrel, or, you know, maybe you uh, go to bottle it and you do a refermentation in the bottle, then that might, you know, a strain of PDO might kick up extra diacetyl in that beer. Um, we've seen that happen at the rare barrel for sure. Um, and you just have to wait for it to clean up. So we, we have a minimum wait time of two months in the bottle, which is a really long time. And it's, it's kind of killer sometimes because we're, we're tasting it along the way. We taste that four weeks or six weeks, eight weeks. And it's just like, okay, this is really good. Okay, this is good. Okay, it's still good. But we're, we just wait anyway, just in case uh, something's going to go and kick off a new refermentation where you're kicking up a lot of diacetyl or ropiness or something like that. We don't want to let bottles out and have them do that in, you know, the customer's hands. We want to keep it in-house as long as possible, so we uh, we prevent that. So in that very uncommon example that you just brought up where, oh, there was, maybe you said just one beer where you just kind of never really picked it up. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't a time factor. It was never there even from the very earliest tastings. Uh, Is that I, but right? I can't say that for sure because I'm not tasting, you know, every beer every day. But, the, you know, certainly we've made beers with PDO that do not kick up a lot of diacetyl. Um, I'd say when we get it, so we have a few strains kicking around in the brewery right now. One strain gets very sick and ropey, and we've talked a lot about it, mm-hmm. a lot about that on the show. We have one strain that kicks up a lot of diacetyl, and then we have one strain that doesn't do either. So I think the strains are, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty much just talking about exclusively Pediococcus damnosus. They're just from different sources. Um, so maybe even calling them different strains is uh, kind of a misnomer. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, if, if it's stopping you from using PDO, I would say just um, just do it. Because uh, PDO beers make incredible beers. You know, Vinny said that on uh, that Russian River Allagash Antion show where it's just like, you know, Beers, sour beers made without PDO, you know, just aren't as complex as the mm-hmm. beers that are made uh, with it. And, you know, I, I agree that it uh, adds an element. I think you can make really elegant beers with Brett and Lacto, Saccharomyces, 
Brett, Lacto. There's just something about PDO. that mouthfeel, though. Can be can be a little different. Yeah. Yeah. You said that very creepily. I did? Yeah. Oh. There's something about the mouthfeel. There's mouth just something feel. about that mouthfeel. But anyway, All I right. guess there is something about that mouthfeel. So <laughs> I can't hate you too much. <laughs> this is uh, from uh, Dave. Fell as much to discuss. I'll cut right to it. Uh, I recently made a batch of brown ale that didn't cut the mustard as a standard brew once I kegged and carved it. So I pushed it from the keg uh, directly into a bucket. I pitched a big, thick slurry of Brettois, which also had bugs from a Belgian sour uh, White Labs vial. It was a, a Lactopedio Brett mix, and I'm letting her ride. This is from back in November, by the way, so this beer's probably much further along at this point. He said the CO2 in solution makes this beer completely anaerobic. Is that right? Uh, temporarily, but he put it in a plastic bucket, so that's going to introduce a lot of oxygen in that beer. Um, was that the end of it? No. He goes on to say, also, the degassing of CO2 in the bucket, or carboy, would result in a layer of CO2 in the fermenter, creating a protective layer buffer for the brew, which is true. I've heard you say that. That is true, but is, again, is that only a temporary thing? It can be, especially with a... a there's a couple problems with the bucket. One is that the plastic's permeable by oxygen, unless it's like a certain type of plastic, like uh, I think better bottles um, are not as permeable as like your typical, you know, just five-gallon bucket for bottling or mash tun or whatever. And then the other thing is there's a huge opening to the bucket where, you know, it is sealed with rubber, which is, you know, also not, it's not, it's just not as good as glass where you think about a glass carboy. You know, it's uh, coming up, it's not permeable, and then it's coming up to a shoulder and then a bottleneck, and that bottleneck is very narrow. So if you fill that carboy up to the very top, and I mean, maybe leave one inch of headspace, but it, then it's going just to the neck part, that's a very small amount of your total beer that's ever going to be exposed to oxygen, plus you get that CO2 blanket on top of it. For so sure. I think... Just based on what you're doing right now, there's certainly a risk of overexposing it to oxygen. And I wouldn't just count on CO2 to bail you out of that. He goes on a couple more things here. He says, uh, do you feel that carving up a beer or a wort prior to pitching your bugs is a process which could be seen as beneficial in making a sour beer? Sure. I mean, that's creating an anaerobic environment. So that's, that's something that uh, Chris Johnson mentioned on uh, his kettle souring technique. I think that was episode three, where he recirculates back into the kettle and he'll basically carbonate the wort on his way back in to create an anaerobic environment and make it so that, um, you know, other yeast or bacteria that may be present just, just don't have as good of a shot as the lactobacillus that he's adding. So, you know, I think that's a great way to, um, to make it an anaerobic environment. And I'm a big fan of doing it with a stone because that's going to really dissolve the CO2 instead of, bubbling it through or putting a blanket on top that's a lot more air mixing around and you can get a lot more uh, exposure to oxygen rather than dissolving it in the liquid so that when the liquid moves through from a transfer um it's it's just breaking out of solution and that's going to create a, a much more effective blanket and anaerobic environment but i do understand that for home brewers that can be a bit of a challenge but um, you know, with a with a little wand and the stone at the end of it, I think you know more beer sells something like that. So you could you could use that. Cool. Well, thanks to uh, uh, Dr. Lambic and uh, sourbeerblog.com for sponsoring Dave's question uh, and all the questions on uh, tonight's show. And we will be talking to Dr. Lambic in just a couple of few minutes or uh, just a couple of few days if you're listening to this after the fact.
Yeah, it depends. Depends on what you're doing right now. What are we doing right now? Are we doing any more questions or are we uh, trying to get to Dr. Lambic? Let's get to Dr. Lambic. Let's go take a beer break and then uh, we'll do the next show. That sounds great to me. We'll get to a few more questions in the next show. We uh, Our segment with James and big thanks to James. That that was great. A lot of good info. So I, I wanted to ask him a lot of questions. Um, so maybe we didn't get to as many of yours as we, as we could have, but... We'll, uh, we'll hit those in the next show, although Matt's got a lot of great info, too. So we're going to have to ask him about his latest article on Sour Beer Blog and his new beers. Um, but, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it again and answer some more questions on the next episode of the Sour Hour. Thanks again for listening, you guys. Network.